Case number 20210124. Investigators Adam, Evan, and Michael. Subject matter Algorithms and Social Media 2. Case study. I'm Adam. I'm Evan. And I'm Michael. Today, I wanted to talk about algorithms. We mentioned that in our last podcast, and I feel like we need to go into a little more detail. It seems to be a fairly popular thing to mention nowadays, and I think a lot of people maybe don't understand how they work and what they do. So, real brief, we're going to go through the Wikipedia definition of algorithm which is that in mathematics and computer science, an algorithm is a finite sequence of well-defined computer-implementable instructions typically to solve a class of problems or to perform a computation. That's a little complicated, but the easiest way to understand that is it's just a set of instructions that you perform to do something. That's the easiest way to understand that. And a lot of websites nowadays will use these algorithms to determine what to show you. So I have a few examples here. Google being the biggest example. When you search something in Google, you type your phrases into the search bar. It will use a whole bunch of different factors to determine the order of results. Things like what you typed in, obviously. A ranking system, which is internal to Google even up to your location to give you something that's relevant to your location and how many people clicked on the link. The more people click on a link, that means it's probably more relevant and they're probably going to push it to the top. Social media sites like Facebook and Instagram will monitor you in a different way. They will kind of look at posts you interact with. If you're on Instagram, they'll monitor how long you spend on a post or Facebook. They'll, if you scroll by a post, if you click on a post, if you click on the comments, if you click on the like button, things like that, if you share it. These are all metrics that are used to determine are these posts relevant to you? Because as we mentioned in our last episode, it is physically impossible to see everything happening on these social media sites. YouTube is another example I'll, I'll quickly throw up. The videos that you watch, the channels that you're subscribed to will determine what videos you'll see in your, your sidebar and on the end screen of, of videos, but also on the homepage. You know, everyone's trying to fight for your eyeballs on these sites. Finally, the last example I have is Amazon. If you buy an item or you click on items or you search for items, they'll use that to determine what to try to sell you. Like, oh, these are some other recommended items or people who bought this bought this. Maybe that's relevant to you. Maybe it's not. So I guess I have a question about that kind of related to it then. That would be a lot of the times I hear a rumor on the internet that a lot of the time people think that their phone is listening to them, such as they're talking about a baking tray that they're thinking of buying to make a cake. And then an hour or a day or two later, they'll see a baking tray pop up in their recommended uh, suggestions to buy on Amazon or Instagram or on Facebook. Is that a result of algorithms then? Yes. So these big data companies, Google, Facebook, Amazon, they're really good at extrapolating data from trends. So people will say and argue that, oh, my phone is listening to me because I'll just be talking about this to my friend you know, audibly, and the recommendations will pop up. That is not proven, but we can at least say that, oh, 
patterns leading up to you looking for a baking tray may be apparent. Oh, you follow a lot of cooking blogs. Maybe you've been liking and sharing posts. And especially if you're using, say, Facebook Messenger, they're obviously going to be scanning your chat history for keywords like, hey, there's this recipe that I found that I want to try, things like that. So it's definitely a possibility. I don't know and I don't think that they're actually listening to you because you can at least deny the microphone permission and it still might be able to show that to you. Yeah, so I think that's going to be a, a large rabbit hole to delve into is mass surveillance and technology companies' role in it. Because anecdotally, there's cases out there that don't make sense from what you're saying, Adam. But in general, the algorithms that tech companies use to figure out what you like are very advanced. And there's a twofold reason for that. When you have things like Google and YouTube, the companies, which is all owned by Alphabet, but Google and YouTube specifically looking kind of slightly different as one is a search tool and one is a video tool. The algorithms for Google are designed to show you, the user, what you want to see. And on YouTube, its algorithm is designed to show you, the user, a video you'd be interested in seeing. But everyone who has things that you are finding on those sites is trying to beat the algorithm to show you their content. So it's an ever-evolving and, and growing system where these companies have to build better and better algorithms at determining what you're interested in. So if you keep looking up a recipe and if you sat through and looked on it and the site is tracking you and you stop on a part of the site that needs a baking tray and you kind of sit there for a little bit or something, that might be enough for them to say, you know what, maybe they need this because maybe they come back to it or maybe you go back to it the next day. Like that is enough where the algorithm might cue into something because they've had to become so advanced because it's not as easy and simple as just, oh, I'm looking for cookie recipes and it's just like a list of different cookie recipes. Yeah, and just to quickly touch on that, at least Apple and Google have uh, mechanisms built into their phone devices that allow advertisers to target you specifically, at least for Apple, it's called the identifier for advertising and Google's is an advertising ID. Those are inherently baked into the operating system of your phone and you have very little control over that. Now you mentioned surveillance earlier, but I think this is actually mechanisms built into your phone. As an example, the Apple IDFA identifier for advertising sort of tool restrictions, Apple recently implemented a more strict usage of that application. And that actually caused Facebook to be a little bit concerned because they would not be able to track their users as carefully. This was something that I picked up while reading through their earnings transcript in preparation for the last podcast. Because they're not able to use Apple's token to track you as carefully, they aren't able to basically track your user as a profile if they want to try to advertise to you. Another quick and famous example that I'll, I'll give is, and I'll have to go find this, but a few years ago, it was revealed that Walmart could determine, or maybe it was Target. It was Target or Walmart could determine if you were pregnant based on the things you were buying in their store. Now, obviously that's not audio based and that's not advertising based, but based on what you were buying, they could just determine if you were pregnant or not. So there's another interesting concept in kind of what we're talking about with algorithms. 
and the advertising aspect of it, one of the primary purposes for the advertising and the tracking and like the Google advertising ID and, and the advertise or uh, identity for advertisement, Apple ID is a way for them to make money off of you. And this is a concept that we, I don't think we touched too hard on last podcast, but uh, I'm sure we all remember back in our, you know, high school economics class learning, there's no such thing as a free sandwich. And that's about the fact that if something is free, there's still something being made profit somewhere along the line off of it. A lot of times whenever you go out to like, oh, these big public city fairs, there's like a Remax handing out Frisbees. And that clearly worked because I remember Remax handing out Frisbees. That's what they got. They got my mind share. They got my social media. Like, ooh, Remax, that's a realty company. That's literally the only reason I remember them is because of the free Frisbees. That was their goal. And with advertisements and the algorithms tracking you to show you like baking trays. The reason these algorithms are so interested in your habits and and what can be fed to you is so that they can then turn that around and profit off of your information about your habits and your daily use so they can sell it to advertisers to show you baking trays that you may buy off of a company such as Amazon, which is just like, these are just a big companies profiting off of you because they can track you and they can see what little things make you tick. And it's all about refining the minutia of what they show to you for them to maximize what they get out of their side of things. Because Google's free, YouTube's free, the Google Play Store, the Apple Store, it's all free for you, the user, because there's other ways for them to get things from you. And I think that is a good segue into our next topic. And this is something important that you mentioned, Evan, which is the only reason we have these algorithms in the first place, Google, like you said, the search engine is free. How do they make money? They sell ads. Google is an ad company. They sell you ads on YouTube. They sell you ads in the Google search. Companies will pay Google to push their results higher in the ranking so that you see it. You go, oh, I'm looking for a plumber. Okay, well, here's a plumber that advertised locally to you, maybe. Something that has been kind of popping up more recently on these different social media sites is a phenomenon called astroturfing. This is not a new phenomenon. I believe that its roots began in politics, where grassroots campaigns would appear to come out of nowhere. It would be like if your community got together and was like, hey, we want to support this person or this initiative whatever in reality this movement was paid for by a big organization so i guess the term astroturf would be it's grassroots but it's fake grass and this is apparent on a lot of different sites reddit twitter facebook even one of my favorite examples is actually on amazon when you go buy something on amazon what do you look at you look at the reviews you look at kind of the listing but really you're looking at the reviews seeing what people are talking about okay great the easiest way for a seller to manipulate their ratings is to just buy a bunch of accounts or their services to do such things to basically put a bunch of fake reviews to, in order to, to boost their rating, right? And that pushes them higher in the search 
results when you're searching for something. There's a website that I use occasionally called FakeSpot, which kind of analyzes the reviews with their own algorithms to kind of determine how legitimate these posts are. And I think that's a really interesting use. It's kind of like two things fighting against each other, right? You're fighting against the algorithm of Amazon with your own algorithm of making sure the product that you're buying is not just some garbage because of the reviews are garbage. Now, Smarter Every Day did a really good video series on social media manipulation. I highly recommend checking it out. He covers algorithms in your newsfeed, YouTube algorithms, Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit. And I would really recommend it. It's a really good watch. Um, and it kind of covers all of these things that we're talking about. So one example of astroturfing, going back to that, is, and I'm going to use Reddit again because that's something that at least Evan and I are, are on quite a bit. As we talked about in the last episode, Reddit is huge. It's a big site. It can't stop growing. The more they try to grow it, the more they really succeed at it. Um, I have a picture here of a post on politics, pretty divisive and large subreddit. I think it's one of the defaults, but I'm not sure. It has a title. The title is Bloomberg pays fines for 32,000 felons in Florida so they can vote. This is a really interesting post to me. I wanted to break this down. I, I broke this down for my friend earlier and I wanted to kind of go through it with you guys because I think it's really interesting how in just a few words, this post on Reddit can be seen in a couple different lenses. The first one is that Reddit by itself is also algorith algorithmic. Essentially, your front page is filled with posts and some magical black box determines the order of posts and how likely you're to see that post. Now, Reddit has their own ways of turning their own internal dials to kind of manipulate this up or down. One of the most obvious ones is the award system. You can give posts an award to say, hey, this is a good post. Reward the author with a post. There are rumors that the Reddit admins have the ability to just give out as many awards as they want without actually paying for anything because they're the admins. So why do I think this post is astroturfing? One, it has a feel good title, right? When you look at this title, you're like, oh, say you don't know who Bloomberg is. You go, okay, this guy pays fines for 32,000 felons in Florida so they can vote. That sounds good. That sounds like a good post to me. Okay, great. At this time that this was posted, I believe Bloomberg was in the news for his campaigning where he poured a lot of money into his campaign. I believe this post was around that time. So it's a controversial person. People are gonna be fighting about it in the comments. Engagement and lots of awards. This post is filled with awards and I have no idea why, but one of the easiest explanations is that someone paid to put this there. Now, the feel good title grabs your attention, makes you go, hey, that sounds like a good thing. And since people only read headlines, you're less likely to go verify. I think though, when, I, when I'm, I'm looking at the image too, and when I see it though, I can't help but kind of wonder what is the distinction if you had to say between astroturfing and clickbait because so far from how you're explaining it i'm kind of struggling to see the difference between the two right now so the primary difference uh the way i view it is astroturfing is attempting to directly impact and change your thoughts and opinions whereas a clickbait is designed to draw your attention so you interact with their content now that distinction feels kind of loose but when you're dealing with things like political actors and uh, like 
large scale political opinions and things like that. It's different than BuzzFeed saying, here's five cute cupcake tips. You know, that is to me kind of the largest difference there. So I remember a few years back when Orange is the New Black was a really big growing popular show from Netflix. And there was a little bit of controversy with one of the ads because it was a newspaper article in a... I can't remember which newspaper it was, but I know it was one of like the Washington Post, New York Times, um, one of those. But it was really just... They created an article that was about like the prison industrial complex and the prison school to prison pipeline. But in the corner, it was very tiny. It said sponsored by Netflix. So would that be an example of astroturfing because it has a political agenda or not because it's Netflix, which is not a political being theoretically? I would say it's kind of a gray area. The fact that it's advertising, it is advertising and they can use advertising to push a certain political statement. But if you're kind of masquerading as a newspaper article, then yes, I would say so. The other concept there that I think is really important that delineates astroturfing and advertising is you directly know that that ad was sponsored by Netflix. When you see a political ad, it's this video is sponsored by Joe Biden or whatever. That is not a astroturfing. That's an advertisement. And it's because you know who fund, well, you know who funded it, you know who's ideas are behind it you know why it's being shown to you astroturfing you don't know you just have to critically think and tell and determine is this something that is being shown to me because it's popular or because they're trying to beat the algorithms and change the system and that's really hard to do and that's part of the reason astroturfing is such a big deal if we take all those things and we continue analyzing this this post based on on your question michael as far as a controversial person i would say on top of political figures heaven i would say any large figure it's pretty well known that large actors ceos anyone that has a really big public presence has a public relations team that does PR for them. This PR has now spread into, I don't want to say damage control, but you might have seen, say maybe when, you know, the show that you were watching came out, right? You might have noticed a lot of different ads from a lot of different people that are talking about this show. And it doesn't seem like they're getting paid to talk about it, but they're just mentioning it, right? And just mentioning it is a grassroots kind of way to get that idea into people's heads. Now, I believe the FTC guidelines now, you know, kind of enforce that you have to disclose when you're getting paid to do so. But on platforms like Reddit, you can just buy a bunch of bots or old accounts that will just interact with your post and that will essentially appear as if there is a organic group of people talking about this post and raising it to the top. And and this is something that's kind of pretty well widely known is bots and, and alternate accounts. Uh, a while ago, there was a joke on the internet that you can buy Facebook likes on Fiverr and they come from Middle Eastern accounts. So someone, this is from a comedian, but someone's friend posted, I can't wait for my flight to New York. 
and they dropped the five dollars and got them like a thousand likes from all these middle eastern accounts and that's because you can just do that yep uh, it's it's a well-known open fact that you can buy like upvotes on reddit you can buy likes on facebook you can buy retweets and like hashtag trending hashtags on on twitter just by manipulating either like bot farms or like people farms like it's it's not difficult to do that and actually during during the this podcast i actually went and looked up like how do i sell my reddit account just to see and like there's just all sorts of forums and sites out there that are super sketch and i probably shouldn't click on any of them that you can do that at yeah you if you click into this post as an example my friend marion clicked in there were a lot of comments apparently saying oh you know they were they were throwing out these i don't want to say controversial but political statements like oh voter fraud or people with criminal record shouldn't vote whatever things that were related to the title but that would guarantee engagement now you could argue either way that this was a legitimate post or it wasn't but you see these posts all the time especially at least I notice them the most on Reddit because say something big happens to some big TV show or a movie or something, or even a video game. I think cyberpunk was a really good example. The weeks leading up to cyberpunk, there was basically nothing but cyberpunk content on the gaming subreddit. This, this is also where astroturfing gets hard to determine though, because the astroturfing got its name by being fake grassroots so if you can have grassroots impacts on things that you're trying to emulate through astroturfing it can be difficult to tell when it's a real grassroots or versus a real astroturf because by all accounts cyberpunk sold amazingly well on launch and it was going to be very popular in the weeks leading up to that because so many people were interested in buying it so it's it's almost believable but that maybe that wasn't astroturfing and we would like to believe that companies have enough integrity to not engage in that and let their product stand for itself. But also, I can't have faith in corporations and companies because they do engage in activities like this and you can't know what company actually has that label of an integrity. I think with Cyberpunk... It was probably that people were very excited, but companies can still astroturf to take advantage of that. There's a couple ways you can go about it, right? You can steer the conversation in the direction that you would like by basically planting the seeds of the conversation, or you just plant the first seed and then people just latch onto that idea and just go, then they just, they just go by themselves. So you don't even have to do anything. You, as long as you just plant the seed, you're good to go. I think... One of the biggest examples that reared its head um, within the last few weeks was the QAnon conspiracy. I just want to quickly mention that. QAnon, for those who don't know, is a conspiracy theory that originated on 4chan. That alone should be enough to discredit anything else that I say after this. Because 4chan, as we know, are all a bunch of trolls. But they're very good at it. And somehow the media picked up this conspiracy theory and then people just latched onto this idea. And I think at this point, whoever created it to begin with was either so good at it or they just gave up that they'd let the narrative just spiral out of control and people just latched on. And it was at that point, I think, whoever still believed in that conspiracy theory were vulnerable enough to believe in anything else that anyone just gave in because 
one, anonymity. You could just say whatever you want, call yourself Q and then go, boom, we can change the narrative however you want and nobody would know. Sort of an extreme example of astroturfing, but an example nonetheless. And as far as astroturfing goes, I'd, I'd almost be hard-pressed to call that astroturfing just because it isn't apparent where the funding is coming from. Like, that might be a true grassroots conspiracy wildness, but it could also be a concentrated impact by people to destabilize public opinions and thoughts. And then if that's the case, then yes, it is astroturfing, but it just, this is the issue. Again, astroturfing versus true grassroots is hard to tell. And with something that has no clear monetary gain, it can be difficult to tell. I think QAnon is more of an example of a troll that someone else decided that they could take advantage of and astroturf their own ideas into it. There was, it seems like so long ago, but I think at the end of last year, maybe the beginning of this year, I don't even know anymore. There were those like monoliths that people found in the desert. Those seem to appear and then disappear. And I'm pretty sure at some point I saw some tweets that were just like, all right, what is it that you want to sell us? Just get it out. But it's entirely possible that there was nothing to sell. It was just an art piece that someone had put up. But anyone could have claimed that and basically commandeered that idea like, oh yeah, this is part of this ad campaign that we were running or whatever which happens a lot. And and this is why it's so important and why the FTC has changed how they regulate this is you have to disclose when you are being funded and discussing like certain media goods, products, services, whatever. You have to disclose it on official capacities because that's bad if you don't because people don't know if it's legitimate or not and what product you're trying to sell. And it, it, it's really hard for everyone, not just well-educated, not educated people, people like the whole gamut of of the population struggles with this because without like interacting with somebody face to face and speaking with them it's really hard to gauge whether something is legit or not on the internet there's ways to do it but you really have to be immersed in almost the language and and how things are built and how things actually operate on on a, a lower level than just reading at kind of the, a higher level and, and seeing ads and things. We're gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back. And we're back. I want to transition into a follow-up for our social media episode. Something that I believe Michael wanted to bring up from last episode that we didn't get to was the rise of the influencer. And I think that's very relevant for this conversation because of the use of algorithms, like Evan was mentioning earlier, say YouTubers as an example. They're all fighting for your eyeballs. Advertisers, YouTubers, but YouTubers are really interesting, or at least big influencers, maybe even on TV. They're really interesting because they can form these, what's known as parasocial relationships with the viewers, where you go, oh yeah, they're my friends, where in reality, you literally don't know them at all, and they literally, literally do not know you. It's a one-way street, right? Whatever image that they're trying to present to you, trying to sell to you, is what you get. And it's kind of why people say to, you know, never meet your heroes, because they're almost never who you expect at the time. Well, I mean, just by itself, influencer, the base word of which is influence, this 
word obviously conveys the idea that the person in this case, I guess, I'll stick to YouTubers and Instagrammers because that's the field that I'm most familiar with personally. But obviously, influence means to change the view of or feeling towards something. In particular, a lot of the times that will be material goods for advertising purposes, such as products like uh, dietary supplements, um, media technology, in particular with YouTube and Instagram, clothes, makeup, fashion, and beauty and health trends in particular. But obviously, there's no limit to what an influencer could theoretically push towards their demographic of viewers. And again, with the particular nicheness that exists with YouTube and Instagram with these parasocial bonds, because you, as the viewer, feel as though you are growing closer to them by seeing these quote-unquote intimate views of their life, such as in their home, office, or vlogs, or photos of their daily routines. It really makes can make it seem as though they are not just selling you a product, but selling you, not even selling you something, but perhaps telling you a way that they are living that you can then replicate by purchasing said product that they are selling to you. And I think one of the biggest examples in the past few years was, I don't remember who because I don't keep track of these things, but some big Instagram person was trying to sell, I think, makeup and got slapped with an FTC fine because it wasn't obvious that she was selling makeup. It wasn't like listed at all. But obviously everyone that followed her was like, oh man, I got to go get this makeup. And it was very clearly an advertisement. Right. But they're, they're selling you this idea, this ideal of a person, really. And you, you it's pretty common, at least on I would say on YouTube, you would see like in the comments, people, you know, there's usually people are pretty aware that the person they're talking to or they're leaving a comment for is they're a big YouTuber and they're not going to know everybody. But you have these fringe cases where I would say some people are, are obsessive is the word I'd use where they kind of consume all aspects of their lives, any post they make on Twitter, any post they make on YouTube, into this ideal to the point where it's unhealthy. I want to say that one of the more recent trends that stand out to me is people who re are really into K-pop. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but there'll be there'll be people there. They have entire accounts basically dedicated to either like a band or one of the performers. And that's their entire identity. It's not even their own at that point. It's just obsessing over this one person. And maybe you're just a really big fan, but K-pop specifically is manufactured to be popular. It's pop for a reason, but these big companies like pump out these big acts and they can get a huge fan base and they can try to sell you at the image of the band or they can try to sell you physical items. I think with a lot of these newer forms of advertising though, it makes me wonder, is it that the advertisers have gotten more clever of how to integrate their and weave their way into our everyday lives? Or is it that a larger and larger, perhaps exponentially growing portion of people are just unable to distinguish when something is an ad versus versus not an ad or something that is paid for perhaps even. So I think to touch on that, advertisement and marketing has continuously improved and evolved. The historical like billboard banner ads, like nice, happy, white family, turkey dinner, whatever, when they're advertising for like an oven or something, like all the old historical marketing has improved to where it is today with like our Doritos ads, our Coca-Cola ads, like these big companies put 
put millions into researching and marketing to you. And when social media rose up, it was kind of the wild west again for how to market. And some of the interesting ways to market originally were having people share like, oh, like I remember early on in Facebook, you could like, you could like a page and it would be in your like liked pages or something part of your profile and all these corporations had like oh you like coca-cola oh you like pepsi oh you like in and out and like you could go and interact with that and showed up on there but it was like facebook hadn't figured out how do these people how can we use them how do they fit into this and now we're figuring it out better and better and it's i think it is becoming more of a people know when they're being advertised to so they try to minimize how that is actually being apparent so they are trying to reach out and and do influencers and do these small level marketing astroturfing like hidden campaign things and that's why like the ftc has newer restrictions on what is an advertisement how do you disclose it and that sort of thing because it, it can be hard to tell these days because they're getting better at it one quick thing to mention and it's something that you mentioned earlier, Evan, is mindshare. Advertising is really effective even if you don't sell a product. If you can sell them an idea, just like say I'm holding up a box of tissues. What do you call this? I said tissues. Oh, I was said Kleenex. You almost said Kleenex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the example of mindshare, right? Kleenex is a brand. Mm -hmm. That's not the name of what it is. It's a brand. I'm pretty sure that's from Costco. So it's that kind of, if you can own a piece of people's mind, mind share, then you've basically won. So I think a lot of these like big advertising companies, these big corporations, they'll do stuff like that where they'll make some either controversial or some super dramatic advertising campaign that gets that's really exciting and people are like oh yeah that was for the thing one one interesting little side note there is when things have so much mindshare in the public eye that everyone refers to it that way like kleenex obviously clearly we all don't but when the mindshare becomes too big and, and everyone refers to these generic products that way they in the u.s at least they stop being able to apply their trademark because it's a generic term for this thing. And I, I'll find an example and throw it in the show notes, but I know for a fact this has happened before in the United States where they've just, it's become the generic name for something. I might even add on that an advertisement, I don't think even necessarily has to be big, dramatic, or very memorable. It can just be so repetitive and everyone sees it constantly that it really just stays there. For example, with me, I have a lot of handbags. I watch a lot of YouTube handbag vloggers and video people, and pretty much everyone has, for example, in my case, a Samorga bag organizer. So after watching maybe 10 hours of these videos, what did I do? I thought, hmm, I guess I should buy some Samorga bag organizers. And lo and behold, I now have six. So it's not, again, to reiterate, it's not even that it has to be memorable, but if you're constantly being shown the same product by every single facet of social media that you're looking at, you more than likely, perhaps even almost always, you might feel tempted to uh, give in and kind of buy it and buy into it with everyone else. It's one of the traditional advertising strategies, actually. I think one of the biggest ones is television. If you just show the same ad over and over and over again on multiple channels, especially channels that are similar, then when you go, oh, I need like, uh, I need some power tools. 
and you'd think of the last thing that you saw because it was drilled into your head because you were watching TV. You're like, oh, they sound like a brand that I know. Let's go buy that. It is another strategy, I would say. So another thing that we talked about in the last episode, I think Evan, you mentioned this, was that a lot of these sites have anonymity and how that affects how people people's discourse on those sites. However, I think what we've now realized after the course of the past few weeks is that that actually doesn't make a difference. As long as people are behind a screen and they're not talking face to face, they will say whatever they want. Hence, all of the posts on Nextdoor, you literally can see on Nextdoor where they live and their real name. But people are still gonna be upset on Nextdoor. Facebook, one step removed, but it's the same thing. Because people, I think, maybe don't realize how that affects, it's again, like we talked about in the last episode, where just because you're hiding behind a screen doesn't mean it's not what you're saying. It totally is what you're saying. It's just the medium in which you convey it is different. There is a comment or there was an Ask's Reddit thread titled, when did the generation of don't believe everything you read on the internet start believing everything they read on the internet? It was a really good comment that we will link in the show notes, but I'll just quickly gloss over. Their two main points was that the fringe has a tendency to dominate the conversation. You might have heard this as the vocal minority. And two, social media is very good at organizing people into fringes. This is important for today's episode because social media obviously wants to try to engage you on their site. So if you can group people by common interests, including fringe interests, then you as the company running the social media site don't care. It's more engagement for you and your your company, right? And that's a way to sell more ads because you can target, hey, this group of people, they're interested in this one thing. We can just target that and probably get higher returns on our advertising. But it's just that conversations like these, they kind of get lost because they're not face to face. They're just behind a screen. So you can toss in some astroturfing, you can toss in some algorithms, and then boom, you have this captive group of people that are open to the ideas presented, you know, in the context of this fringe group, and they're surrounded by people who also agree with them. And I think this is a good segue into one of our last topics, which is deplatforming. Deplatforming, which you might have heard because of some recent events, two weeks ago is a phenomenon where essentially all of your public, I'm putting public in quotes, public facing outputs are removed, right? You basically have no platform to stand on. Now, how does it work and why does it work? I think it's interesting to talk about this because if you were, as an example, a politician who had opinions, very loud opinions, and you were able to broadcast your loud opinions on all these different networks. It doesn't have to be media networks. It could be social media, it could be television, it could be billboards, it could be paper advertisements, whatever. If suddenly, if that ability for you to do so was taken away from you, you would be deplatformed because somehow collectively, everyone decided that this was not a good idea and you to be banned. The other reason that this works is because the algorithm favors controversial topics. As we discussed earlier, the headline about Michael Bloomberg, a influencer, you know, selling a product, 
those generate headlines that are controversial and big public figures. So people argue about it. And if you don't give people something to argue about, they can't. A few famous examples, I would say. One of the most famous ones before, I would say, two weeks ago was, I want to say in 2012, maybe 2013, there was a big push from some Middle Eastern terrorist organizations that used Twitter to recruit new people. Twitter then implemented a lot of their own algorithms to try to combat this. And as a result, they have not been able to recruit because they were deplatformed from Twitter. Alex Jones is another big example, right? His big YouTube channel, I think, might have been removed. I know it was demonetized, but it was straight up removed. There's there's an interesting concept about deplatforming that I think can only happen with the modern internet today. I think 10 years ago, well, less than 10 years, I think five years ago, maybe, kind of before Twitter really hit its stride uh, and you had Facebook, Twitter, Instagram as like the big three, and then you have Google and YouTube as kind of their own thing over there. I think deplatforming was a lot less impactful. If you got banned from Twitter, you typically still had like your own blog somewhere and a lot more people were more interested in having like their own website and posting things there. And that has gone away on the modern internet in some regards. Now, obviously you have Amazon Web Services hosting something like 60% of the internet. So if they deplatforming you, it's very difficult for you to have like industrial servers hosting your network or connecting to it. But I think the centralization of social media and information across fewer websites has led to deplatforming having a larger impact. So that's kind of an interesting point, which maybe we could cover in another episode about the internet in general. But the internet as it's built now is completely dependent on like a few different companies providing you this infrastructure to get your content out to the world, right? You were saying people don't have blogs anymore. I think they do still have blogs. The issue is that one, bandwidth, if you're not paying someone else to do it, is very expensive. Two, if your hosting provider decides, hey, I don't like what you're saying, they can shut you down and you have no say in it. You'd have to basically go get your own server put it in a rack somewhere and have everyone connect to it. The biggest example recently, I would say, is the Parler takedown. Parler got kicked off of AWS and with the amount of traffic that they were driving to their site. Okay, first of all, one of the issues with Parler is that they claim to be another social media site, right? However, it was filled with fringe opinions. So you can look that you can look at that in a few different ways. One is that the fringe opinions are no longer on other sites, right? You don't see them anymore. They don't exist because they've all left because they've been deplatformed from those sites to go to this other site that says, hey, we'll take you in. Fine. The issue then comes when all of your hosting providers say, hey, I don't want any part of this. I'm going to cut you off. What do you do at that, at that point, right? Then you have to go dig up your resources. And there were definitely like a lot of things a lot of issues with having to host your own site with that much traffic. Another example that I'll use is there are some big subreddits that have created their own websites, but they've either failed or are so on the fringe that those people would have been kicked off anyway. This example that I'll use is 
the ChangeByMuse subreddit, which tried to set up its own site based on you know their community, but they found a few things that had happened. One, they lost a big number of their user base. And two, the people that are left were kind of, they're not as many people, right? Because one, it's a lot of effort to move people to another. And, and you know, they, they wanted to try to control their own destiny, right? But it didn't work. And this article kind of goes into to the why, but it basically leaves you with users that are basically really dedicated to the cause. So if you have sites that splinter out from these big sites, then you're going to be left with even more extreme opinions than before. And, and I think this kind of goes back to what I said earlier was how the internet's changed in the last five to 10 years where we have these large, large social media apps and Google, YouTube that really, that's where you go. I go to Reddit. I don't go to imager.com and I don't go to like different news websites to look up news articles about sports i don't go to espn.com to look up sports i just go to reddit and i go to baseball subreddit or whatever that's the way i curate my news today is kind of letting other people do it for me which isn't a great thing right like we've just discussed all this issues with astroturfing and algorithms and whatnot but it's the easy and convenient way and ultimately you only have so many hours in a day and that's why all this is so important the mind share the astroturfing the advertisement is to capitalize on your limited time looking at these things and so when you have the deplatforming thing it basically limits who would view it because a lot of people don't have the time to go around to all these different places and look at all these different things and people who are dedicated are going to find these things it's the people who are not dedicated and not sucked in that is why deplatforming works to an extent when people aren't sucked into things and it just kind of goes away and fades away, they'll move on. They'll go to the next thing, you know, whatever. But when it's constantly there, constantly in the background, like, say, Fox News at the gym, where it's just always on, uh, you know, that sort of thing is constantly shaping that that mind share and opinion and, and thought and time. And that's why deplatforming can work, because people just don't have that time. And that's also goes back to, you know, how the internet is built. If, say, several large companies control where everyone is, right? Like, I'm not going to go to anywhere else, really, to look at pictures if they're not on Instagram, as an example, right? Then if you're not there where everyone else is, then you basically don't have a voice, right? Like like you said, Evan, if you don't go f searching for these yourself, you're never going to see them. And so I think that... With the way that the internet is built now, right? If you're in these big public spaces where all these other people are and you don't have a voice there, then you essentially have no influence over that group of people. And it's only the people, I'll use conspiracy theorists as an example. There's always these conspiracy theory forums, but you might've noticed they're not exactly in the most public of places. You have to go and look for them, usually because they've been laughed off or kicked off of other sites. So, you know, you could, you could make the argument you shouldn't be silencing this kind of thoughts, but you could also make the argument that that's not necessarily correct. And just real quick, before we go, I want to touch on the deplatforming is not an infringement on your right to freedom of speech 
because these are private companies and private platforms, you individually can still go out in public and say basically whatever you want. I think there's some issues with hate speech, but I don't know the full laws in every location. But you can go out and you can say whatever. The government is not instituting a ban. The government is not telling these companies that your users can't say these things. It's the private company saying, you can't be here. We don't want you on our private space because it is a private web server. It is not a government web server that has these things going. It's Reddit, reddit.com. They're a corporation. They can control what goes on on their website. Yep, and this is known as Section 230, which you might have been hearing about recently that still exists to protect websites from things like this. The First Amendment, at least in the U.S., covers protection of speech as a person from persecution from the government. That does not mean there are no consequences to what you say, and that does not mean people will laugh at you for what you're saying. And I think that'll do it for our episode today. Thank you to everyone for listening. Thanks to Evan and Michael for joining me on this rather complex topic. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Aces Cases. You can beat the algorithm by following us directly. Follow us on Instagram at casestudy.show. Go to our website, casestudy.show. And we now have, in addition to our YouTube channel, audio-only versions of the podcast. So you can search on your podcast app of choice. If it's not there, let us know. But search Case Study, and you should look for our logo, and you should be able to see it. If not, the links, the direct link will be linked in our show notes. Thanks for listening. Case number two zero two one zero one two four closed.